the staff where we talk about our point of view And we share the things we're gonna do And we hope you're learning something new Cause the path to mastering theory begins with you Welcome to Notes from the Staff, a podcast from the creators of U Theory, where we dive into conversations about teaching music, music theory, ear training, music technology, and more to students of all ages. I'm Greg Risto, founder of U Theory and a professor of conducting at the Oberlin Conservatory of Music. And I'm Leah Sheldon, head of teacher engagement for U Theory. And with us today is a special guest, Dr. Andrew Mockamer, who's assistant professor of music education at Baldwin Wallace University. He's here to talk with us about preparing band and orchestra students for contest sight reading. Andrew, welcome. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. And why don't you tell us just a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And I went to my undergraduate degree at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, which is a small state school outside of Pittsburgh. And there I earned my bachelor's of music education. And then for graduate school, traveled to University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities. And I earned my master's and doctorate in bassoon performance. Uh, During that time, I taught many different marching bands, pep bands, concert bands, private lessons, you know, anything to just stay in the education world and kind of hone my skills Um, And then moving here to Berea with my wife, starting at Baldwin-Wallace about five years ago, um, have really enjoyed being a part of the community here. So tell us a bit more about your role there at at Baldwin-Wallace. What do you teach? So I am the band music education faculty member, and so I instruct the woodwind class. I also teach instrumental music methods, which is an upper-level method course for our music education majors on how to be a band or orchestra director. So I co-teach that with my string colleague. It's a a really fantastic class. Um, And then I also oversee student teaching placements and supervision. So I I get a really great opportunity to go out into the schools and meet directors and and watch our students interact with their students and kind of see what what is going on in in the area and, and how people are managing Um, the pandemic and their programs and kind of where the trajectory of things are going here in Ohio. Uh, So we're going to talk specifically about uh, preparing students for contest sight reading and and being the one person in this conversation who hasn't taught in the public schools and isn't so connected to that. I wonder, Andrew, could you just start us off with what in the world is contest and and when is it and, and just give us some background? Yeah, contest is an opportunity for directors to take their ensembles to a place to be adjudicated. I think just to get some outside perspective on how their ensembles are progressing, to get some objective numbers from experts in the field that they can use to then inform their instruction as they move forward with their program. Um, I think that's such an important thing to do. Otherwise, you're just getting kind of feedback from administrators who might not be as well versed in the musical arts, right? So to get really specific surgical feedback about blended balance and intonation and things like that from people that know, (laughs) I think can be really valuable. Um, So I think that's why we do it. I think it's also a great way to kind of have something to work towards with an ensemble um, to get the students excited and engaged. And, hey, we're going to work towards this goal where we're going to go play in front of some really great people and we're going to get some feedback. So I think those those things all combined can make contest a really valuable thing for both the students and the instructor. So I think a lot of teachers are would probably like to know, why do we do sight reading our contest? 
<laughs> because it's fun. Why not, right? Because it's enjoyable, and everybody loves to be put on the spot and try something brand new in front of new people, right? I mean, I, I, I really do think we do it at contest because I feel like it like deepens the experience for the players, right? We're we're already there. We're in our in our uniforms and our outfits, and we're playing already. Like, why not? Why not do something that is going to kind of give us a a baseline idea of, of where our musicianship is as an ensemble and let's play some music that we've never seen before and let's 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 kind of put our musicianship to the test right um and so i think at contests it's a really great time to do that and and then again to get that feedback from the experts i mean when else are you going to do sight reading and have it be meaningful in that way right like you're not going to do sight reading in a concert although we'll come back to that i have an idea but you know, I, I just, I guess, like, when else are you going to do sight reading uh, and have it be as meaningful as it is when it's a contest, you know? Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, so, mm-hmm. I mean, why is it specific to contests? Should it be specific to contests? You know, I think back to when I was in the classroom and it became so important at that time of year, um, but it could also be important the whole year round. Absolutely. Yeah, you can't wait until the last minute to start getting ready for sight reading right before you do it, right? It, it has to be a holistic approach. Um, I think what you do in rehearsal every day should then be applied to a sight reading exercise, right? So if you're rehearsing and breaking down notes and rhythms and you have a counting system that, that you have your students use, maybe put the rhythm on the board and break it down, the ands and the es and the uhs, and, and, and have them participate in that, kind of teach them to teach themselves almost so that when they're confronted with a new rhythm in the sight reading, they can then apply that. But that needs to happen year round, like every day in rehearsal. Maybe you have a warm up routine where you put a difficult rhythm on the board and you break it down and then you play it as part of a scale. Um, or in rehearsal, you ask the question, who has the melody here? Who should we be hearing? Who should we be listening to? Who's the most important part? Like those are things that. I think should just be part of your rehearsals every day, right? And then again, the sight reading will then test your musicianship and and the ability to make decisions as an ensemble, but you have to give them permission to do it in rehearsal and you need to let them try it multiple times before they have to do it, you know, for a contest, which is just like a pa- like a, a point on the path, right? The sight reading at contest is not the end, right? It's just like a point of reference to, to get some feedback to then move on to the next part of your growth as an ensemble. But yeah, I, I agree with you. It can't just be right beforehand. It has to, I think it has to be baked into everything that you do um, in your rehearsals. Mm-hmm. So just coming back to my naivete, imagine that I'm like a yeah. ninth grader and I've never been to contest. What's the day mm-hmm. going to look like? And, and how is that sight reading going to be maybe different than sight reading we do in the band room normally? Right. Yeah. So what is what is going to be different? And I think that's the big thing, right? When, when things are new and different, it shakes our confidence a bit. And especially in the wind world, when we don't feel confident, we don't take a good breath. And when we don't take a good breath, it's going to be hard to create a good sound. So how can we make that newness or, or, or those things that are different commonplace? And we can train them to, to do that. And so they're going to be they're going to be wearing their outfits, right? Their tuxes or, or whatever concert attire. They're going to have new music in front of them for, for the first time. They're going to be in a new space, so it's going to sound different and look different, and they're going to be playing in front of somebody new. Okay, so like all of that, and we're not even talking about the music, right? All of that is new. So how can we get them comfortable with that 
and there's going to be a time limit probably, right? And sort of various rules around that. Yeah, yeah. There's usually, I mean, in Ohio, there's a, um, there it says three to four minutes where there's a silence and everyone's working on their own music, right? And then three to four minutes where the conductor gets to go over things. Nobody plays, but you can sing, you can clap, you can sizzle, you can, you know, so like that process needs to be practiced, right? So again, like that can't be a new experience on the day of sight reading. So we need to, we need to go through that process. What, what is, what is the process of getting ready to play a piece for the first time? And so you need to say, you are going to open your music. Let's look for key signatures, <laughs> time changes, right? Difficult rhythms, expression markings. Do we know what this word means, right? I mean, all of those things need to be addressed in our practice sessions so that when they sit down and they open their music for the first time, they can start to look at those things and they're comfortable doing and, and dissecting those things right off the bat. But but I think, you know, with this newness, like having people come in and, and, and adjudicate or clinic before that, right? Like getting comfortable playing in front of new people is going to be such a huge help. Um, I, what, the thing that's really interesting out here is there are some cafetorinasiums, like some schools don't even have auditorium. So they go to a performing arts center for an adjudication event and everything sounds different and it looks different and it's very intimidating. So yeah, anything that we can do to make them feel more comfortable is going to translate to a better performance. And so realizing and identifying what those things are and giving them a chance to try it out beforehand is going to be key. So thinking about the logistics of sight reading, Andrew, how do you how do you make sure that the students know exactly how they're going to get that music uh, passed out and divided up without eating into that preparation time? Right. I think that's part of the process as you're as you're rehearsing it in rehearsals, right? Is okay, who who is gonna hand can we identify this is the section leader who's gonna hand out the parts to the other members of the section? And particularly percussion in the back of the room. Who is gonna be in charge of assigning the different percussion parts to the different musicians in the back and, and getting those instruments set up so that you're ready to go when the time comes? Uh that can't be a day of decision, right? That needs to be something that's kind of baked into the experience of practicing sight reading in a rehearsal. So I, I think, you know, having some student leadership set up and having those responsibilities clearly defined before that moment, that's going to lead to, the, to some success there. And letting them practice it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I remember thinking way back to uh, like middle school, high school band myself, right? Playing French horn. I remember just being so shocked by the sight reading experience because generally in our band program, we would work on the same pieces of music for a really, really, really long time. And it was pretty mm -hmm. rare that we worked on, on reading skills. And it, I, I wonder if that is something that's changed in the, you know, 20 plus years since I've been in high school or if that's something that is still the case in a lot of band programs that I know certainly in a lot of choral programs, um, that many teachers choose to focus more on, uh, certain pieces of rep rather than sight reading. Is that, is it true in the band world as well? Yeah. I mean, you have your selection that is from the list that you're going to be adjudicated, right? You want those pieces to be extremely polished. So you're sweating it, right? You want to make sure that those notes and rhythms, that everything is right there. And sometimes sight reading is, is more of an afterthought, right? And so we just don't do it very often. And plus, it's, it takes a lot of work to get sight reading pieces together for the group to play. I mean, to, to make sure that all the folders have all the pieces and it just, it's time intensive. So 
I think it, it is something that definitely gets kind of pushed to the back of the mind or swept under the carpet. But um, again, if we can just like practicing in general, like practicing three hours before a concert is not going to do it. But if you take that three hours and spread it out, it's going to be much more fruitful. So I, to your point, I, I think, yes, it still happens. A lot of directors either don't have the time or the energy to, to do more sight reading exercises. But if we want to be successful at it, we got we got to do it. We got to mm-hmm. do it more often. And so. I mean, I, I have to think, right, the point of, of doing sight reading at contest surely isn't just to do sight reading at contest, right? But it, but it says that as a community, we value those skills and we want to reinforce the importance of teaching those skills. Sure, absolutely. And so I wonder if you might talk a little bit to the value of sight reading and why we just teach sight reading in general. Yeah, I think it creates independence in the players, right? That they feel confident that they can look at a piece of music and get a sense of what it sounds like through audiation or be able to dissect the rhythms or to look at the terms on the piece of paper and just just know that I'm going to be able to perform this music, right? There's nothing here that I haven't seen before and I feel comfortable and I'm going to be able to, to play this. So, you know, I, I think it's just the general musicianship of the player that we're nurturing when it comes to preparing them to sight read so that they feel confident and they're able to perform the music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, really great insight on the sight reading um, as a whole, not just as a specific part of contest. Um, you mentioned something a while back, though, that I want to kind of circle back to. So you said that you mentioned a accounting system, and this is pertinent because last week we actually uh, were talking about soulfish systems and the, the importance nice. of having one for teaching new music. So I think that kind of goes right along those lines. Um, do you have anything else to add on to that about, you know, what other tools or skills are really necessary that we need to intentionally give to the students so that they are able to be good sight readers? Right. Yeah, um, that's a great question. And I think outside of rhythm, I mean, notes and fingerings are going to have to be on that list, too. Right. If we sure. if we aren't addressing that in rehearsal, if we aren't giving them the tools they need, the fingering charts to, to they can find fingerings themselves. Right. So, you know, when we think about the hierarchy of, of music making, like notes and rhythms, right? And then phrasing, blend and balance, intonation, and all of that affects one another. So when we talk about specific skills, like how, can you hear the beats of intonation that you're out of tune? And how do you fix it? Mm-hmm. How do you do it with your embouchure? What do you move on your instrument, right? Those are tangible skills that you can absolutely address in rehearsal that will then directly affect the sight reading performance. But yeah, the, the counting, fingerings, intonation, you know, identifying who has the melody, right? When you have a long tone, <laughs> that's probably not the melody. So let's turn our listening ears on and try to find the moving part. Um, things like that that can be ingrained. But yeah, t- to your point, those tangible skills can absolutely be useful when it comes to the sight reading p- portion. Can you talk a little bit about counting systems? Sure. And I, I think it's it's different. It's what your comfort level is, whether it's the Gordon method Right, and you're doing do's and do days, or I, you know, the Kodai, the the Takadimi. That's a little outside my comfort zone, but you know, the one and two and one e and a two e and a, like those counting systems. Although maybe not the most musical thing, are really clear, and you can put them on the board, and you can have the students count and clap and dissect, and you know, this is beat one, and beat two starts here. Then what part of this beat is this note? Um, I think those can be 
really helpful and, and having the students write it in their own music so that they get comfortable with dissecting rhythms in their own parts can be really helpful too. So maybe let's let's just think about like long-term strategy. So let's say I want I want to be sure that by the time we get to contest, my students are ready to to read whatever rhythm happens to appear in, in their part. So what does that look like over the course of of the the school year in the classroom? Yeah, I think depending on what that rhythm is, you kind of integrate it into your warm-up routine where you have that rhythm, they're exposed to, to that rhythm. Or I guess I guess specifically, like because we, we won't know necessarily what the rhythms will be, right? Or are there... True, yeah. So like, how do you, how do you, where do you start? How do you build up those skills long-term? Well, there is a list of what types of meters that you're going to see in the sight reading portion of of contest, right? Depending on what class you are. So if you know you're going to be dealing with 6-8, right, or 3-4, um, the, the more the students are exposed to those meters, the more comfortable they're, they're going to be. Obviously, that makes sense. Um, so I guess just knowing what you're in store for and making sure that you perform or rehearse music that have those meters in so that the students are more comfortable when the time comes, I think that's got to be key. Um, you know, people are like, well, 6-8 is so difficult. It's like, is it really difficult or is it just different from what we normally play? And we just need to expose them to that triple feel more and then they'll, they'll be able to do it. So that's why, you know, the Gordon methods is so great because you, when they're in your jump right in method book, it's like you do duple meter and triple meter at the same time, right? So you do two, four and six, eight. So we're, we're dealing with two macro beats and then the micro beats change, but the macro beats are the same. And, you know, understanding that differentiation and the feel and the subdivision of the beat is so great. And we need to make sure that the students instill that in their rehearsing and in their practicing as well. Yeah, I think that's such a great point, especially especially with with compound meter, oh. right? How often do we find students who somewhere along the line got in their head that the 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 number on the bottom of the time signature tells me how many beats there are, and right. so I am going to count it: one, two, three, four, five, six; one, two, three, four, five, six. And it's such a different feel mm -hmm. than you know than when you have those two, as you as you said, macro beats and and the the subdivided pulse within them. Um, statistically, right, this, I'm going to fall back on my very nerdy music theoriness, right? Statistically, when we look at music written in 6, 8, 9, 8, 12, 8, there's a much smaller number of rhythmic patterns that are used, uh, than there are in music written in 2, 4, 3, 4, 4, 4, etc. Right? Mm -hmm. We generally, it's, it, the, a huge portion of it is just those basic patterns of the three eighth notes, da, 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 or the long shorts, da, da. Mm -hmm. uh, or the full beat length, and and really any other pattern is 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 pretty unusual. Um, mm. So, yeah, yeah that makes sense. I think, you know, sorry, just to <laughs> to dive off, but we do. Let's I, do I think we get a bit freaked out about six eight when we start. You know, because if we're counting it at the eighth note level, mm -hmm. we won't notice those uh, macro beat length patterns, which are, you know, there aren't all that many of them. Absolutely. You know what else throws musicians for a loop is ties, right? Where we have a rhythm and we introduce a tie and all of a sudden there's an obscureness to the beat or we lose the subdivision and their heads just kind of implode there for a minute. And you know, when we're rehearsing, if we can take those ties out and let them experience what's happening underneath the tie and then you put the tie back in, right? So kind of like simplifying the rhythm, giving them a chance to experience it. And then when you add that tie back in, they have a sense of what's happening. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, it's, rhythm is just, gosh, it's so important. I would argue that it's probably the most important thing 
particularly when you have a room full of high school students trying to do something all together. If the pulse isn't there, if the rhythm isn't right, it's going to be very difficult to do anything else on top of that. I mean, even more so than than correct notes, which is probably blasphemous to say, but the rhythm is is just paramount. You got it's got to be there. So, well, a correct note at the wrong time is still a correct note. But the rhythm is... Incorrect note. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Agree with you. Absolutely. (laughs) I I love that. I love that. Yeah. And you tell that to a band and they're like, oh, yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah. You were talking about uh, also the the fingering and getting notes right aspect of things. Mm -hmm. You know, beyond just handing out fingering charts, what sorts of things can you do to build fluency in that? Uh, Scales. Period. I, I think scale work is, is so important uh, on on a wind instrument. I mean, they're building blocks of music. So if you want your students to be able to play a G flat, right, you, you need to have keys that have that note in there. And you need to practice those scales, and that's how they're going to get comfortable with it. So then it's not just a fingering, right, but it's part of a scale, part of something else, right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think all the majors and starting getting into the minors, like that's really going to help the fingerings a lot. And it will also help you identify where the fingering deficiencies are. Um, I remember we did um, a hymn song of Philip Bliss, which is D flat major. And so it was really apparent which instrumentalists knew those fingerings and which didn't when we would warm up with that scale. Right. It's like, OK, we, we got to work on on these fingerings in the trombones uh, slide positions or we need to work on this alternative fingering in the clarinets um, to help them overcome these difficulties. But, yeah, I, I just think scales it is has got to be it. That's got to be the answer when it comes to, to fingerings and, and finger fluency. And beyond scales and putting rhythms on the board, where can directors turn to find resources. I'll kick it off by saying I I had the opportunity to work with both a middle school and high school band. And so I would often pull from the middle school library to practice high school sight reading. Yeah, I think that's I mean, any music selling website is going to have lists of pieces by grade. And if you're going in as a class A, and you know, you're going to read primarily grade four music, I would go to that list and find some threes and twos that you can put in front of them to practice their sight reading, right? There's also just so many state lists out there of pieces that that other states use for their adjudication, and Ohio is no exception. So look at those lists and say, okay, well, what are the adjudicated pieces that are on the list for the grades below mine? And maybe we can practice sight reading some of those. But um, yeah, I think any any lists of, of pieces are going to be helpful as you're kind of deciding what would be a good sight reading exercise for ensemble to use when you were talking about that that um non-playing time before playing in contest you mentioned a a couple of things you mentioned counting you mentioned um singing and you mentioned sizzling can you talk about yeah yeah, how all of those play into things and i don't even know what sizzling is so yeah well it's i mean it's you basically like sizzle the rhythm and what why i like that is it 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 forces the musicians to uh, engage their abdomen muscles, right, as they're playing or as they're sizzling, right, and which is which is kind of the breathing apparatus we want to engage with as they're using their air to play their instruments. So not only that, but it it kind of has them work a little bit harder to get the front of the note 
to sound, which in the band world is kind of where we need to line things up. So the sizzling is is a great exercise um, for them to to kind of utilize their breathing apparatus that's going to help set them up for playing. But but yeah, I think that that silent rehearsal time, study time is it can't be overlooked. It just they need to know what to do and they're not going to know what to do unless you go over that with them and and kind of give them the clues of things that they need to look for as they open up a brand new piece of music. Is it is it accidentals, right? It, I mean, the key changes, obviously, but is there a tempo change? Do you see a retardando somewhere? What about these crescendos and decrescendos? Where do they happen? How are we going to do that? Um, all of those clues are going to help them perform the piece better, but they're not going to know to look for those unless you practice it uh, in rehearsal. So, you know, let's open up our sight reading folders. Let's open up this brand new piece of music. Who can raise their hand and tell me something that they see that, that we should work on, right? That, that we should look at or that we should pay attention to as we perform this. And I think over time, they're going to be able to refine that list and they're going to get to, to all the things that you need them to get to. But yeah, I just that, the, and, I, and I love that. I love that there's this individualized, like silent time where they are just on their own, kind of dealing with the music individually. Because again, we want them to take ownership of the music making process. And I think that's a great way to do that. You mentioned singing also. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, singing. Uh, singing the line, right? Singing the melody. Let's, you know, as, a, as the director on the podium, oftentimes singing in band is the best way to model because you can't pick up all the different instruments that are going on. So if I want something a particular way, I often sing it for the ensemble, but then to have them sing their own parts, right? I think that would be such a powerful way for them to engage with the music without having an instrument in their mouth. I mean, we sing a lot with drones for intonation purposes, right? To exercises. We'll put a drone on and we'll sing a pitch and we'll match and we'll, we'll bend that pitch down or up to kind of manipulate the beats so that they can then apply that to their instrument. And I, I just think, you know, for us as a band with all these different ways of making sound reeds or mouthpieces or no reeds or percussion, like, Let's all make sound the same way and let's let's have that be our base where we can just all kind of be on the same page and connect with this pitch or melody or what have you. And then we can apply it to our instruments. I mean, if you can sing it, you can play it, right? And uh, it's just, that's our mantra and it just, it really does connect you to the music. And But they're only going to be comfortable doing that if you sing in rehearsals, if you practice that. And a lot of times, you know, if they can't do it, it's like, okay, well, let's play it first okay, now let's sing that same melody. Like, let's give them a chance to hear what it sounds like and then let's sing it. And you get them to get into that routine for a bit and they build their confidence up. And then you say, okay, now let's just try to sing this without playing it. Let's just try it. There's no wrong answer here. Let's just see how it goes. And then, okay, now let's play it. Were you close, right? So not necessarily solfege syllables, but I there's a lot of benefit to that too. But I we just do it on a neutral syllable. Just to, can you, can you find the line? Do you know how your part goes? Um, and then apply it to your instrument. So it's a great exercise. I've do. heard, you know, I, I, um, I did my master's and doctorate at Eastman. And uh, when I started my master's, it was right mm. at the end of the Donald Hunsberger era. era and uh, Mark Scatterday started right then. Mm. And then, of course, was still there when I was doing my doctorate. And both of them said really similar things about singing. Like every band must be able to sing and would use it so constantly as a tool in rehearsal, even at, at that very high level. Um, I love I love some of those ideas you've just shared about how to how to move towards that you know even with an ensemble that's maybe a little scared about singing. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I've heard so many times. I, I'm not in choir, I'm in band, right? We're, why are we singing in band? It's like, because we're, we're making music, because we're becoming better musicians, because this is going to help us play better, right? There's no, there's no disconnect. But yeah, the, the, I just, it's such an important part. And a lot of bands don't do it, whether someone's uncomfortable or there's not enough time. But yeah, it, even at the highest level, like you said, it can be a really powerful tool to help get everybody on the same page. Yeah. And I guess it probably uh, the reason, I mean, we said singing's great. Bands have to be able to sing. Everyone has to be able to sing. Probably what we're really after there is the idea that we all have to be able to actually hear mm -hmm. in our mind what the music should sound like without resorting to an instrument to, to create that sound. So talking about like internal hearing, really. Yeah. Yeah. Can you audiate this line? And also, you know, when you have your instrument, you push the buttons down and you blow and the note comes out, but it is not it, like, what's the function of that note, right? Like if I'm playing a concert F and it's F major, then that intonation is, is at a certain frequency, right? But if that F is part of a B flat chord, well, now that F needs to be just slightly higher, right? Or if it's, if it's a D chord and I'm playing F natural, it needs to be a little bit higher than that, right? And so we need to be able to listen and adjust and hear where we fit in. It, just pushing the button only gets you so close. And so that's why we do a lot of pitch bending. The groups that I do, we do we sing with the pitch bending and what does it feel like to be out of tune? Like let's 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 do it wrong on purpose or let's let's experience what being flat or sharp on purpose actually feels like and then let's let's bring it back into in, in tune so that or or matching pitch so that when we're on instruments we can do the same thing. Um, the analogy I use is it's like a camera lens, which is turning out to be a terrible analogy because nobody has cameras anymore, right, that have lenses. But but when you want it to be in focus, the first thing you do is you take it out of focus and then you bring it back in and then you know it's in focus, right? Um, and so it's kind of the same idea when we're teaching intonation and we're using singing in the ensemble is let's let's kind of take it out and then experience it and then we can bring it back in so that we can compare the two. Again, differentiation, right? Like if we know when it's wrong, then we'll be able to know when it's right a little easier, I think. So, You mentioned working with a drone when you do that kind of work. Do you, uh, mm -hmm. How do you get from just um, tuning that unison to a point of knowing where I am in the chord and adjusting based on where I am in the chord? We sing it. <laughs> we sing it, right? And like, so what I, what I typically do is we'll... Yeah, right. Matching the pitch is the first thing. And then we'll sing up the scale with the drone on the root, right? We'll sing as an ensemble up the scale and back down. And then when we get comfortable with that, then we'll walk up this, the scale and then the third will stay put. And then the rest of the group will walk up to the fifth and then we'll have a chord, right? And then we'll take that one chord and we'll walk it down the scale to a five chord, right? And then we'll start messing with the third to make it minor and we'll, we'll say, okay, the people on the fifth now, we're going to take it sharp on purpose. And what does that do to the chord? So, you know, there is a way to gradually get them to understand their chord responsibility. And of course, you can talk about just intonation and put the sense difference on the board and all that too, which is helpful. But to get them to experience it and to do it singing, now they're not worried about, we're taking a, an equation, a part of the equation away, right? We're not dealing with instruments, different sounds, like let's just sing it. What does it feel like? And then, okay, now let's apply it straight to our instruments. So, you know, whatever we do in the singing portion, we immediately do right on our instruments so that we have that direct connection between the two. Um, but it's just the, the groups that I do that with and the groups that I don't do that with, it's just such a stark difference that it's worth the time. And you can do it quickly once you have it set up. You don't have to talk much about it. You can just do it. But um, it's just a great, great way to warm up and, and just singing 
getting them comfortable with that so that when you have them sing a piece, now they're already that we just we sing and band. That's that's what we do, and that's going to help us be better. So, um, you know, I come from the choral world, and so usually when we're mm-hmm. singing, we can see everyone's mm-hmm. parts. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if I if I'm wondering, am I on the root fifth or third? I can always look down and 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 usually see what the chord is. Sure, but that's not the case, obviously, in the band world or orchestra world, where you have you know just your own line. So then, how do you transfer that over to working on real music? Right. So I think you pick the chords that are the most important ones, and you kind of lead them to that answer. Right. Like, let's sing this chord. Or let's play this chord. Okay. If you think you have the root, let's have you play. Right. And like, let them kind of lead them to that discovery on their own. But you can't do it for every chord. You would be there all day. Right. So let let's pick maybe the first chord or the last chord or if there's a key change or a transition or you know it's the end of a movement or what have you but yeah i think it's comes through repetition and and that type of practice but because you've done the singing in the warm-up right they have a sense of that and now okay let's let's apply it to this particular chord and if they're still not getting it then you can do the same process of okay everyone play b flat okay now we're gonna walk up the scale and when you feel like you get to your chord member your your chord tone you're going to stop and you're going to hold that out so you know there are ways to then incorporate that warm-up and that singing and that playing all that all that you did with the drone um with that so yeah you're you're right and i'm so jealous of the choral world because you have that ability to see and as the conductor you have all the answers in front of you now albeit it's transposed (laughs) and all spread out and you have the percussion to worry about too but but in the choral world, you have all the answers right in front of you. And like, what a luxury that that is. Um, and then I think about my string colleagues, where they're all playing an instrument that basically makes the sound the same way, right? Strings and bows, and they're all concert pitch. And like the homogenous sound that they're able to produce, because they're all on instruments that make sound a certain way. And then the band world is just completely different and wild with all the different instruments. And um, But yeah, so to answer your question, there is a way to get them there. But you got to kind of scaffold it slowly over time, and then they'll be able to identify. But you have the answers, and so you can kind of help lead them to to the correct answer um, as they're listening to their part. And the key there is slowly over time. Again, this can't be started yeah. the week before contest. Right. These are skills that are being practiced all year long. Which is why sight reading is such a unique thing, right? It's like a snapshot of where you are as an mm-hmm. ensemble. And we need, we need to understand that that's all it is, right? It's a snapshot, and... And it, it's a metric that that we're going to use to help make the group better, right? It's not it's not like it. If we get a two or a three at sight reading, that means that we're a terrible teacher or this is a terrible group. It's just it's just a, a point of reference that we can then use to help our instruction moving forward. We need to work more on six eight, or we need to do stuff in minor, or we had a we had a a word in our piece that we didn't know what that meant, so we need to make sure that we play pieces that have that so that we can address it in our rehearsals. When I think about sight reading in choral contexts, I think a lot about the intersection of the, the, the group's strength and abilities and individuals' strengths and abilities. Mm-hmm. And as, as you're working with students over a longer period of time, how do you, how do you balance those two? That's a great question. Um, I mean, from year to year, you're going to have certain sections that just have stronger players than others. And... I guess just knowing where your weaknesses are and, and making sure that those students get extra help along the way. Um, I, picking your rep is going to help that too. Like if I know I have a weak trombone section, 
we're not going to do Lassus trombone. I mean, that's just probably not. Or if my clarinets are struggling, like Molly on the shore is probably not the answer for this year. But, you know, just you're going to know where your strengths and weaknesses are. And I think sight reading, that's probably where things get a little dicey is you can kind of stack the deck in your favor by what pieces you choose to perform. But in sight reading, you're not choosing that piece. So I guess in rehearsals, just being aware of that and making sure that you get some extra attention to those groups, maybe bringing in someone to work with them as a section, right? bringing in a, a local professional and having a pull-out sectional every now and then. Um, or if you don't have bassoonists or oboists, kind of starting that process earlier in the middle school. See, now we're talking really thinking far ahead. But mm-hmm. um, again, like I just think it it's just knowing your group and knowing where, you're, where you are. And sight reading can certainly help give you a sense of where that is. But yeah individuals versus the group it's always tricky because some are going to take private lessons and some aren't some are going to be in koyo and noyo and cwi you know all these great groups and and others <laughs> just you, sure, for, for those of us in ohio we know those but uh <laughs> oh i'm sorry can you tell us what those <clears throat> yeah youth orchestras or youth ensembles right so cleveland orchestra youth orchestra or northern ohio youth orchestra or you know contemporary youth orchestra extracurricular ensembles outside of the band room or orchestra room or choir room, they're going to get those experiences. And so, yeah, you'll know your group and where the deficiencies are, and then you try to address them as best you can. The other thing I think a lot about uh, in, I'm sorry, so much of, my, of what I know is based on the voice and choral world, right? So yeah. I'm just curious to ask about these various parallels. One mm-hmm. of the things that we do, you know, of course we do so much solfege work, um, and one of the things that, that uh, a lot of us do to uh, connect solfege work to rhythmic work is we'll set up a pattern within a scale and mm-hmm. we'll say put a rhythm up, project a rhythm um, using the document camera or, you know, whatever, and say, okay, hey, let's, uh, let's, let's do the pattern do, mi, re, fa, etc. on this rhythm and then perform them. Do you, is that, do you do things like that in band as well? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, especially in the middle school level, you would probably just play like every note of the scale on like do a measure rhythm. Right. And then do the next note of the scale on the same rhythm. But I I love Mm -hmm. that as well. I love that idea. And what I really love to do is I'll put the rhythm up again without any ties in it and we'll count it and we'll play it. And then I'll add that tie and say, okay, now what does it sound like? All right. Now let's count it and play it this way too. But it's a great way to connect the warm up to the piece the music. and it's that i think 100 percent. that's a great way to do it yeah i i don't do much solfege and i i love solfege but in the band room i don't know i just we just always do it on a neutral syllable i i, I, I there's no particular reason why I don't, maybe because of the transposing instruments right like i don't know like do would be different i mean do would be do but it would be a different note on the different instruments and right um, so we don't typically do that but yeah i, I love that idea but you do play your scales, right? Which I think, in effect, oh, is a, is it's just like they know where they are in the scale. And true, I think as singers, you know, we don't have buttons to push down, and yeah. so it's really nice to have a word to kind of replace the function of the buttons a bit. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. How do you, Greg? How do you feel about numbers versus syllables? <laughs> do you have a preference between one? You and should the other? listen. Listen to our last episode. Okay. All right. <laughs> so I love them. I, I no no no. A- Andrew, I love them all. I am mm-hmm. I am just completely. I've I've He's not spent kidding. time in every major solfege system, wow. and each of them has helped me to hear different things in music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, 
anyway, in, in my own teaching, I, at Oberlin, we use scale degree numbers mm -hmm. and fixed dough. Okay. Uh, the gotcha. idea being that we want students at all time to be tracking both where they are within the key and also what note they're actually singing, playing, etc. So that if, sense. you know, if I know I'm in E flat major and I'm singing three, then I know I'm singing a G. Wow. Or if I hear a four and I know that I'm in F sharp major, that's a B, right? So we're trying to, we're trying to make those things very tightly connected. In my work at Interlochen, we use movable dough with dough-based minor. Mm -hmm. When I was teaching in Texas, uh, movable dough law-based minor. So, wow. you know, I've really, I have, <laughs> I've been through them all. I think they're all wonderful. I think the main thing is it, kind of like with, you know, what you're saying, you can't, you can't pick it up the day before sight singing for your Allstate audition. You've got to, mm -hmm. you've got to be doing it all the way along. And yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I love all the different systems too. And, and how they, some might work better in one situation or another, or then you get in the 21st century or atonal and now like. <laughs> Solfed syllables are really difficult. Numbers are much easier. You know, all, all of that is, I find it really interesting. And we, we have a class at BW. It's called Solfege, but we use numbers. So you try to figure that one out. But uh, yeah. <laughs> numbers are kind of Solfege. That's, yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is true. I have, a, I have a student at Oberlin. You know, all my life, I've, I um, generally when I've done atonal sight singing, I've worked in fixed dough and uh, had a first year student, actually not, not a music major, but a student in the college last year. Uh, and I do actually weekly individual sight reading meetings with my choir wow. students. Mm -hmm. And so they're only like five minutes long, right? So really super quick meetings. And and this kid um, came in and that first day, I'm just like, you know, it was like open page one of the sight singing book, just see where they are and nails it. So turn about halfway through, nails it, turn to the end, nails it. I pull out modus novus, uh, atonal sight singing. Actually, I started with some Wolf songs, nailed it. Finally pulled out modus novus, atonal sight singing and opened it. And, and he looked, he said, key is this in? I said, well, it's not really in a key. <laughs> right. And he said, okay, I'm just going to call the first note do. And just proceeded to nail every atonal melody I could throw at him using movable do and just picking a note as do. Wow. And, you know, and I, I just said, it's like, how, how did you learn to do this? He said, well, we just, you know, we just did sight singing every day from elementary school through to the end of, uh, of high school. And mm. yeah. So I'm so jealous I, that he's... <laughs> Uh, yeah, right yeah <laughs> that needs to be everyone right yeah yeah no i think i think you know I, I would be amazed if everyone who graduated from from that choir program could do that but mm -hmm. but i think it is a testament to where you can get students if you if you do these skills right and and so you know the student comes in studying in the college and singing with the top conservatory ensemble because wow. you can just read down anything it's really yeah yeah, that's so impressive. And I think the flip side of that is, you know, some kids come to college without any background in solfege whatsoever, and then they struggle in the first solfege class. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, you've never done it before. So you got to cut yourself a little bit of a break and work a little harder up front to, to get what you need to do. But but yeah, I, I'm, I'm jealous of people that can just do it because that was never me. I had to, I had to grind it out. <laughs> it was tough for mm -hmm. me. Solfege was always a difficult class. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think I don't think anyone is born a solfege whiz kid, right? I mean, I think it's it's that like, when do you start solfege? How long have you had doing it? It's you know, I mean, as you said, right? You don't you don't you don't build these muscles overnight, right? They have to be built right. over the over the long term. I Absolutely. think you know the other thing that that what you just said triggered me to think about is 
when students leave our program, you know, whether they go on to do music in college or life, if we've helped them build these sight reading skills, they're going to be equipped to, to play music they want to play for the rest of their life without needing someone to teach them how it goes. And, and what a wonderful gift that is. Absolutely. Yeah. My, my favorite teacher would always say, like, I'm trying to put myself out of a job. Like, I want to teach you so well that you don't need me anymore. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was really great. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I appreciate that. And I can respect that. And um, you're right. We, we want them to have the skills so that they can enjoy music long after they are done taking lessons or studying with us. I mean, that's we're trying to create lifelong music appreciation people out there, right? That's part of our part of our job. And um, yeah, it's exciting for sure. So although all of this conversation has been about preparing well in advance, um, what are your thoughts, Andrew, on, I've seen directors do this, on sight reading during a concert? This is typically yeah. done at the, maybe the concert, the week of, or the week before contest is happening. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? I, I've seen it done really well, and I loved I loved it. And it what a great opportunity to impress your parents and your mm-hmm. administrators in the audience. We're, like, it's almost like a magic trick. Like, we're going to perform this piece of music that we've never seen before, you know, and uh, to kind of bring them along on the journey. Like, they're going to get, this is what we're going to do at contests. Like, let, let them know, like, this is part of the process. And they're going to get a folder that they've never seen. They're going to open it. They're going to have four or five minutes to look at it on the on their own. And, and here are the types of things that they should be looking at to help remind the students too, right? And you kind of list the things. And then it, what, the, the weirdest part is that silent four or five minutes when no one, yeah. it's really And the quite, parents are uh, just looking around yeah. at each other, side-eyeing. The like, candy starts to rustle. Like the, yeah, it, it gets a really heavy moment, but it also puts the students on the spot too, right? Like how do they deal with the nerves of, you know, now they're not just playing in front of one person, but they're playing in front of their friends and family. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so, so then that the first five minutes happened. And then the second five minutes where the instructor is on the podium and they're singing and sizzling and counting and, you know, he's pointing things out and then, and then they play it and everyone is just in awe of the students. And as directors of people that are with the kids all the time, we know that they can do that, but mm-hmm. the parents don't. And to let them experience that, ah, it's such a, such a great thing. Um, mm-hmm. cause we're, you know, we have to be advocates for our program, not just in recruiting students, but in kind of convincing the parents that this is a special thing that we're doing. I mean, what math class do you know puts kids on desks in front of a bunch of people and they have to do math problems they've never seen before? Like it just doesn't, it just doesn't translate. So, um, and then be scored on it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And then get scored. But I just think it's a well, it's I mean, a great way to mathletes, prepare. right? Well, mathletes. Sure. Tr- were you a mathlete, Greg? I don't know anything about mathletes. Uh, it seems thing? like I should have been, right? No, I, <laughs> right. I was not, but <laughs> but only because yeah. our school did not have mathletes. So, got you. Yeah. So I just yeah I love it when they when that type of thing happens. It's it's just so much more more than just an exercise, right? Mm-hmm. I mean now now you're involving the parents on the process and you're informing them on what you do every day in the band room. And it's just a great, it's a great experience for everybody. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's a plus and not to mention, you know, the students get a chance to deal with nerves and how does it, how does it affect how they play? And um, yeah, it's a great, right. a great thing to do if you can, if you have time and if you can work it out. But um, yeah, I would definitely recommend doing that for sure. 
So we've talked about using like the middle school band library as a resource or, you know, easier, easier music. Yeah. Um, I wonder, I bet we probably all have some ideas for really good sequential resources, sort of methods to, to build up in particular rhythm. And I wonder just if, if we might all share some of our favorites. Yeah. Um, successful habits in the middle school band and the high school band. There, there are, there's a method book series out. It's called successful habits. And that has a lot of great sequential scaffolded exercises that not just rhythm, but corrals, right? That students choose there's four parts and okay, tubas, you're going to play the top part now and flutes, you're going to play the bottom part and to give them a chance to try the different parts of the ensemble. But um, I, I really do like that series, and I, th I think it can be really useful in in the band room. So that I, I would that's the one I would plug for sure. And I would definitely plug um, Darcy Williams teaching rhythm logically. Uh, she's a an educator in Texas, and their um, middle school department also has a podcast called After Sectionals. But a great great resource that has. Um, even to the point of having scripted out how to teach new rhythms, I should say it is rhythm specific, but uh, it also includes these rhythm charts that are just wonderful exercises to print out and give to the students or project on the board and perfect for sight reading rhythm. It's very sequential. There's lots to practice from. Nice. And of course, I'm going to shameless self-plug U theory where students can actually practice rhythms, perform the rhythms, see immediate real-time feedback on how they're doing on on all of those rhythms uh, and you as a teacher can assign particular uh, topics to them as well awesome good well what have we missed you know the only thing we didn't talk about is recording the students and then playing that recording mm -hmm. back to them and dissecting right I, I think that can be a really powerful thing for them and uh and allowing them to decide, you know, what did you hear? What, what are two or three things that we need to work on? Why don't you write those things down, right? And then let's discuss what we missed and what went well and what could have gone better. And now with that new knowledge, let's play it again. Not rehearsing, let's just let's play it one more time. And if you do that enough, then they start to apply those things on the first go around, right, when they're sight reading. So the whole recording and having them hear what you're hearing on the podium can be a really powerful tool. So I would definitely... Make sure that we don't miss talking about that because that can be a really powerful tool. That's great. Excellent. Well, uh, Andrew, if listeners want to follow you, get in touch with you, what's the best way? So they can find me on the Baldwin Wallace website. So bw.edu. Uh, my email is amachame at bw.edu. And I'd be happy to field any questions about Baldwin Wallace, preparing for sight reading music education in general, um, I'm very easily reached and would be happy to uh, converse. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great. Uh, so join us next time as we talk about preparing singers for contest sight reading and sight reading in general. Uh, and in the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. Send us your questions, comments, or show ideas at notes at utheory.com. Notes from the Staff is produced by utheory.com. Utheory is the most advanced online learning platform for music theory. With video lessons, individualized practice, and proficiency testing, Utheory has helped more than 100,000 students around the world master the fundamentals of music theory, rhythm, and ear training. 
create your own free teacher account at utheory.com slash teach.